This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Shelley Boyce, founder of MedRisk. She founded the company in 1994 and was its CEO until 2017. She is now the company's executive chairman. We are speaking with her today about her entrepreneurial journey and its lessons. Shelley, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. My pleasure. So I understand you have a bachelor's degree in nursing uh, from the University of Virginia. Uh, what made you want to become an entrepreneur? What's the story there? <laughs> um, well, I wasn't planning on being becoming an entrepreneur per se. I, it was just a journey that, that led me there. I uh, went to school at the University of Virginia, became a nurse, practiced here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, then decided to leave to go into medical sales. From there, went to uh, work for a company that owned and operated medical clinics. And it was during that time that I came back to school, came to Wharton, um, formalized my education. And uh, it was that time I actually wrote about this business as a marketing plan. It wasn't intended to be a business. It was intended to be a marketing plan for the company that I worked for and and ended up turning into be a business. And uh, I left the company and went out on my own and started MedRisk. So could you explain a little bit about what the marketing plan was and what was the uh, the problem you were trying to solve or the opportunity you were trying to uncover? Sure. So I worked for a company that owned and operated physical medicine clinics. And um, the concept was to help to manage and control the utilization and the cost of physical medicine, particularly in the workers' compensation space. And so I took it to my employer as a marketing plan to help us attract more payer clients. And it was not received so well because it was a cost containment strategy. Mm. Um, I then uh, took it out to some clients and talked to them about the idea and, again, was not sort of well received because it was the chicken, you know, in the hen house. And then finally wrote about it as a, as a paradigm shift for for Wharton. And so the problem... That now, can, I, can I just uh, sure. uh, interrupt you there? Uh, is it true that you didn't get a very good grade at Wharton either? <laughs> about <laughs> is that oh. true? Oh, yes. That is... That is uh, what happened? That is more than true. It, it, they were actually my third strike. First strike was employer. Second strike was clients. Third strike, I said, well, certainly, you know, paradigm shift, you know, business plan for Wharton. You know, this will be my ticket to, 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 make it a, to make it a go. And... I'll never forget getting that paper back, and it said P minus. And I don't know what the grading system is today, but a P minus in 1994 was a half an inch above failure, um, and I was devastated. Although I'll give the professor credit because he wrote at the top of the page, "Good idea. You'll never get it off the ground, though. You have a chicken and an egg problem." And I think I, I think I have that verbatim in my head still today. And he's right. And in, in, in that, that really was one of the early objections that I needed to overcome to launch, to launch the business. So I'd love to understand what exactly was going on here because when your employer, the customers, and the professor all felt that this is not going to work, uh, what was their objection and what was it about the idea that still kept you going? Well, I think that there... Objections stemmed from 
which one of the three I was I was talking to. Mm-hmm. And so I think all three of them were, were different. And before I sort of go through each one, you know, I think that the way that I looked at that is that it's not, in my mind, a failure of an idea. It was they were objecting to something and there was a problem that I needed to solve for each one of them. And by solving, if I were able to solve those three problems, I then felt like, you know, I, I could make this. I could make this a go. And so, if you think about back in the, you know, the early '90s, most of our healthcare system was delivered through bricks and mortar. People going directly to a facility and getting treatment, and basically finding a lot of those facilities on their own. And so, part of the concept was to not own these clinics. Uh, but this concept was to create a network of clinics, which is very widespread today. But back in the 90s, less so. Um, and so it was to basically contract with clinics and act as a network, act as a go-between, hence the chicken and the egg, a go-between between payers and providers. And we were then sort of the intermediary between those two, creating value for payers by getting them to the right providers. Right helping to save money, getting injured workers care faster. And then from the provider's perspective, they received patients, right. and we did all their back-end administrative work for, for them. So we were sort of a, a go-between between those two. Um, and like I said, the, the employer didn't like the idea because they owned clinics, and they just wanted to feed their own clinics. Good. The clients didn't like the idea because they saw us as – a company that owned clinics, and therefore you're not going to be unbiased. You're just going to feed your own clinics. And Wharton didn't like the idea because I didn't have payers and I didn't have providers. Therefore, Mm -hmm. I'm stuck in the middle, and I didn't have either one to get me off the ground. Mm -hmm. So how did you have to modify your plan in order to make it fly? So I think that – so if you go back to each of those three groups, it – taught me a couple of lessons. One, it should not have been housed inside a company that owned its own clinics. It needed to be its own business. So that gave me validation that it should be its own business. Um, And that would take care of basically objection number one and objection number two. Objection number three, which was probably the toughest, which is the you don't have payers and you don't have providers. So how are you going to leverage one to get to the other? And so we created this... um, Will you buy? If I build, will you buy? And so basically we went out to payers uh, because they have the leverage. And we said to a group of payers, and we found an early adopter, and we said, do you like the concept? Do you believe that it will help injured workers get back to work faster and sooner and they will get good care? And that ultimately will save money for you as well. And they said yes. So if we build this network will you buy? And they said yes. So they basically wrote us a letter. It was on typewritten one paragraph. We took that paragraph out to every provider in the, in the tri-state area. And I think we started with the Delaware Valley region first. And sure enough, they said, wow, this is a really big payer. So I'm going to get patients from this payer. I'll sign up. Wow. <laughs> and that's really sort of what leveraged one to get to, get to the other. And then it just kind of grew from there. That's a remarkable story because normally people say that entrepreneurs uh, 
need to win supporters in order to make the business fly. But in your case, it almost seems like those who objected to your idea actually helped to make your idea stronger and better. Well, they certainly helped... Um they certainly helped me feel stronger in terms of the conviction of the idea, no, no doubt. But I think that having to solve those problems and overcome those objections um, ultimately helped really leverage getting the, the business off the ground. So one of the challenges that I've heard many entrepreneurs talk about is the difficulty of raising the initial capital and, and hiring the first team who can help to execute on the idea. How, how did you deal with both those issues? Uh, as you were getting med risk off the ground? Um, so I guess if you, you just back up for a second, you, you think about you need to have a, a good programmer product, you need to have great people, and then you need some resources. Right. And I think what oftentimes happens is people view that not necessarily in the right order. Mm-hmm. If you've got a good idea and you've got great people that are completely compassionate and passionate about the idea and totally convicted to it, um, you will find money. I mean, I hate to say money is cheap, but, but you, will find, you will find money if you really focus on, on number one and number two. And so uh, I think one was sort of making sure that we had the right idea. And then secondly, whenever you're hiring people, whether you're starting up or whether you're, you know, a $100 million company or whether you're market cap of a, of a billion dollars, it's really about finding the right people for where you are in your life cycle. Mm-hmm. And that will change. Mm-hmm. So who you are and what you need as a startup is oftentimes very different than who you are and what you need as the company grows. But what, finding what the right of... people and putting them in the right place, I mean, I know everyone says that. It probably sounds cliche, but it is it is so true. And I think our philosophy at, at MedRisk is – when you look to hire people, don't go look for people who are looking for a job. Mm-hmm. Go find, go interview and talk to everybody you know to find out who's the best and the brightest. Find a way to hunt them down and then stay on them until they agree to, they agree to come on board with you. <laughs> Stalk them. <laughs> what, what kind of people do you go hunting for? Well, I think some of the um, well, obviously, a great team has needs to have a lot of diversity, and so that's and, and that also changes over over time and growing and growing a business. Um, I think, you know, you can always teach someone a skill set, yeah, uh, but you can't teach them a demeanor, a culture, a personality, and whether that fits within the culture of your organization. And I think that is so true to to what we believe in and finding the right people. And um, many of those tend to be people that have, and some of the tougher ones, but some of the ones that you really want to get right are those people that have external-facing responsibilities. So what defines the Medra's culture? Oh, I think I think we've been pretty true over the years to no matter how big we are, to always have an open door, treat everybody equally with respect, and everyone has a role to play. And we really are, and, it, and I know it sounds cliche, but I was looking, reading emails early this morning, and 
the motivation of people and how we treat each other. You know, they were saying, you know, you rock. <laughs> you, <laughs> and I think that type of spirit mm-hmm. and that type of, of um, inclusion mm-hmm. and open communication mm-hmm. uh, is really sort of defined sort of who we are as a, as a culture and, and has, you know, created great strides for the leadership position that we've taken in the industry. So as you went from being a startup to uh, basically a national network in, I think, 49 states, uh, what were some of the key issues that you faced in terms of scaling up your operations? Uh, are there any stories you can tell about the challenges you faced and how you dealt with them at the different stages? Oh, wow. Um, cut me off when I when I t- shall share too many. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the first one is sort of a lack of scale in that uh, our first client, uh, we actually lost. Uh, it was actually the second client. I take that back. But the second client, we actually lost. So we're getting this great momentum, really starting in, in, in the business. And the client came to us, and we're scaling up, albeit small. And they said, you don't know what you don't know. You haven't figured everything out. Call me when you get it right. And we were devastated, mm-hmm. um, but didn't look back. And I think, you know, one of the, the lessons I re- will remember that day very clearly, we said her name was Mary Beth, the client, and we said there were seven of us that worked at the, at the company at the time. We were scaling up to about 20 for this. And, and so we went around and we said, Mary Beth, can I have seven business cards? Mm-hmm. And she gave me seven business cards, and sure enough, we put one on everybody's phone. And we said, every time you answer the phone, you're going to look at this business card, and you're going to think of her, and you're going to think of having lost this client, and we're going to get her back. And that sort of propelled us to that determination of doing what we needed to do to figure out all the, not all, but many of the lessons that we hadn't figured out in the first round. And they did come back, and they were a client, and and they've been acquired multiple times over, but they're still a client today. And that's, wow. 20, that's a great 25, 25 years later. Um, but I think one of the lessons that we learned from that is, you know, clients have different attitudes around their ability to take risk. Even yeah. insurance companies, they're in the risk yeah. business, but many of them aren't risk takers. Yeah. And so really finding the right clients for where you are in your product life cycle is extremely important. So... Theoretically, we probably should have never brought her on as a client because she wasn't a risk taker. Mm. Those that are help wanting to be on the front end, really be innovative and really grow is the kind of clients you want when you're just starting out. Although you're so hungry, you'll take anybody. I'll fast forward to another story probably about uh, we were about $200 million maybe in revenue and trying to scale. And we had hired some new folks uh, and operational folks, and they came from a background where outsourcing was very predominant. Mm. And so we decided that to scale and create the efficiencies, we sort of were convinced that, okay, it's okay to outsource. So we spent the better half of six months, close to a year, outsourcing many of our job functions. Mm. It was so hard mm. letting team members go (laughs) as a result of that. And during that process, we also let some of our customer service 
inside, but inside customer service facing folks be outsourced. Mm. Disaster. Mm. Absolute disaster. Mm. And so? I mean, these were people that were scripted. Mm-hmm. And, and we're really, even though we're in the healthcare business, we're really in the relationship business too. Right. And if your job is to work with payers and injured workers, you don't want to hand that off to someone with a script. Yeah. And they just didn't have – they were all about the numbers yeah. and not about um, the face on the other side of the phone. Yeah. And Not a whole ro- lot of room for empathy. Zero. You right. know, because their job was, 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 very, was very, very scripted. I, I can tell you that it almost took us down. I mean, it it was that devastating. It almost tanked the company. How did you? There recover? were times that you know we were like, "Are we going to be able to pull this this ship back together?" And once again, it's rallying to get the right people. We also hired, made some some um, some employment changes, hired the the right people focused on insourcing everything that we outsourced. Mm. And, you know, it took us about, uh, I would say, three to five years to really fully get that back and to have clients and really see that ramp up in the $500, $700 million range, you know, to, 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 to really take the company to the, to the next level. And, and it so paid off, but boy, what a painful lesson. Wow. No, I think that's that's an amazing story, especially because outsourcing is often seen as a co- sort of cost panacea for so many uh, uh, growth situations. But your experience was quite different. It can be, but but certainly not in, in our situation. And, and no one knows your business better than you do. Mm. And, you know, I think that, that uh, bringing all that back in-house, we've sort of haven't looked back from that since. You know, when a, when a company is on a growth track, I mean, one of the ways in which uh, many companies try to grow is through acquisitions. And I understand that uh, you you had uh, your own experience with an acquisition of medical diagnostic associate management. Uh, what was that like and what lessons did you learn through that experience? <laughs> We're telling all our learning lessons today. Um, that was a big, another big learning lesson for, for us. We were at a time we were probably oh three hundred million in revenue, I would say, and and we were trying to decide: do we grow deep, or do we grow in breadth? So it was a breadth or depth strategy, and and in our space, there's lots of ancillaries, mm-hmm. and so what other, several other people in the business were doing is that they were acquiring businesses and going across the ancillaries and being more of a conglomerate. Right. or an aggregator. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, too, thought, gee, this is, this is a great time to, to do that as well. We think we'll buy a radiology company. Radiology and physical medicine um, are very synergistic. Mm-hmm. So we'll put those together. We'll get client synergies, revenue synergies, and, and, and great breadth and, and diversity to grow the business. Sounds great in a strategy, doesn't it, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but in... in in actuality, what, what happened is, unbeknownst to us, and this was primarily a California-based company. They were national, but they really didn't have much of a national footprint. And they were primarily, like I said, California-based. Uh, a couple things happened. 
probably the most shocking was about three and a half months after the acquisition, California um, implemented a new fee schedule and turned a profitable business non-profitable, unprofitable overnight. Wow. So we went from making, it was a small acquisition, so, and, and we financed it internally. We didn't have to raise capital for it. But small business, making a small profit, losing money literally overnight. So that was number one. Um, we still thought, okay, there's, you know, several other states in the country. And so we started the footprint of expanding into other states. And I think the other big lesson that we learned from that was, you know, it didn't, it was coming into the market as a startup when the market was really in that segment of the business was really maturing more than others. Mm -hmm. And so to be successful in that business, you needed scale and you needed scale fast. And that was difficult to achieve mm -hmm. given the situation in California, given the fact that we didn't have providers and clients in a national footprint. And then third, and probably what, what's most important and the one that, that really sort of, I would say, forced our hand, but had us understand why, why it's time to let go, is we then pulled back and realized how much opportunity we had to really do what we did in physical medicine and do it better. Mm -hmm. And do it so well that we can narrowly focus on that business mm -hmm. and, really, and really did not want the diversion of a small startup mm -hmm. business that was struggling. So we, we chose to peel back and narrowly focus on going deep mm -hmm. and, you know, double the revenue in a couple of years. Wow. That's, again, very, very interesting and important story. Uh, in, I believe in 2017, uh, the Carlyle Group acquired a majority stake in MedRisk. Uh, how, how did that come about and how did your team handle that transition? So I guess your last question is how did they handle it? It was seamless, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a minute. But how that came about, um, it was actually our second uh, bout around with private equity. We, uh, When the company was first started, we, we raised money with angels. So it was, it was friends, um, not many family members, not that we had a lot of family to tap into, um, but also I didn't want to go to Thanksgiving dinner and talk about, you know, is, is the business profitable? So you have to have some <laughs> downtime somewhere, right? Um, right. So, uh, so the angel investors, that, that money was really carried us uh, for about 21 years, and then we decided we were going to go into the private equity space and, and raise some, some capital, do a minority recap to get our, our angels sort of their, their investment back. And so we did a minority recap with a group called TA Associates. They're a high-growth fund out of Boston. Mm -hmm. um, great group. Uh, and we were with them for about not quite two years, about 18, 19 months. And we did about a 2.8, 2.8, almost a three times return for them in less wow. than two years. So everybody was happy on that first round. Um, and then... When we then uh, decided to go from TA to then do a majority recap, we'd already sort of learned many of the lessons of how to deal with, with that type of, a, of an investor. And so now I think we felt more comfortable about taking the next step um, and interviewed uh, several folks mm -hmm. uh, and, and chose the Carlisle Group uh, 
and that was again moving from a minority to to a majority. Uh, they uh, and, and we judge folks basically on um, two main two main reasons or two main one is it a right culture fit? If you don't have a right culture fit with your financial partners and you know you're going to hit some bumps in the road, everybody does. You know that could be a death sentence um, or certainly an unpleasant time, right? Uh, and we haven't had any of those yet, but we're prepared if 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 and when we do. But so one, you have to have a right culture fit. And then second, you want to find investors that can help you grow. And Carlisle met both of those, and they've been a great partner so far. Uh, you know, they are much more in terms of um, growth, much more in the transformative type of growth, where TA was much more about small tuck-in acquisitions. Carlisle Group is, is you know, very large and, and really likes to do large and transformative type of type of things. In terms of the team, you asked how that went. And um, I would I mean perfect. It, it, you know, Mike Ryan was uh, the president at the at the you know at the time. We had uh, transitioned him before we before we started the Carlisle minority to majority. We, you know, I, I, I moved Mike from president to CEO. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, in many respects, he was already acting as the CEO, and, mm-hmm. and he and I have a great relationship. And so it wasn't sort of a difficult, if any, handoff at all. It, it really was, was, was very, um, very seamless. And you hear so many stories where that's not the case, where CEOs are, are Moving or handing off to, to other CEOs. Why, why, why did you pick him as the CEO? What qualities did, did you see from among other possible possibilities that made him the right fit? Oh, that list could go on and on. Um, he is just truly a dynamic leader. There is not sort of, I don't know if I can name one person that doesn't, either in the company or outside of the company, doesn't respect uh, and for the most part, like Mike Mike Ryan, he um, he was working for an insurance company at the time um, when I hired him about seven or eight years ago. And I said, I said to a friend of mine, who is the best leader of sales in the industry? Just f- who's the best one? And they said, oh, I know a person, but you'll never get him. I said, just introduce me to him. Mm-hmm. So they introduced me to to, to Mike, and it, it took about. Mm, Six months before he accepted the job, and quick funny story, before he accepted the job, I was actually waiting to get a call back, hoping that he would accept the job. And I was on vacation, but near my phone. Um, Not so close to near my phone that it went to voicemail, and he was actually calling me to tell me he was going to reject the job. He wasn't going to take it. The good news, my voicemail was full. (laughs) So he never got to deliver the message. I then got back. To, to the States three days later. And over the course of those three days later, he then accepted the job when I got back. Um, but but, but uh, more on sort of Mike as, as a leader. So he came in, he came in during that very transformative transition period where we were really at a time where the business had outsourced and we needed to insource and rallying folks, getting clients rallied first because his job was started in sales. And then moved on to uh, to be the president, really rallying the team members around, you know, getting that hunger and that passion, and, and bringing all that back in house. Um, 
is really sort of second to none. It's just it's remarkable to to to, to sort of see him in action. He's probably one of the few people that I know that um, can fire somebody, and they'll thank him for it. And so he he's very open. I mean, if 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 he sees something that's not right, he's he's. He's very open in his style, and, and he does it in a way that's very direct. Hmm. Um, but but people appreciate that. Yeah, and and he's got an incredible uh, team of supporters. So if and you, I'm one of them. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, well, when you think back about your entrepreneurial journey, what do you think is the biggest leadership challenge you have faced, and how did you deal with it, and what did you learn from it? Biggest leadership challenge. I would say. I would say two, and I, and they're somewhat related, and they both relate back to people. One about other people, and the other about yourself. I think that one of the biggest leadership challenges, and and was as the and I mentioned this earlier, as the company grows, so do the needs of the organization, and therefore so do the talents and the needs of the people. And that can go both towards other people and towards yourself. And so for other people, there were certain points of time where people that had started in the business at a certain point needed to change roles or someone needed to be higher than them in, in, the, in the hierarchy of the organization or maybe they needed to go do something else. And those were personally painful decisions and very difficult decisions as a leader to make. And, um, but I think that for the health of the organization, that's what a leader has to do, right? So, so they were painful, but really had to be done. The, the second one, and, and again, somewhat related, is, is around me, mm-hmm. in that who I was and what I did when we started the business was not going to be what the company needed at certain milestones throughout throughout its its growth. And so, you know, to be the CEO when it's zero revenue and continue to be the CEO when it, you know, it, it exceeds 500 million in revenue, I had to be and really enjoy being a professional learner. So, not only did I have to learn, I also had to adapt and change. Right. And I think that, you know, it's been a wonderful journey for me in learning and growing and always sort of seeking to do better, but that's not easy, you know, so, and it's not easy to let go of things sometimes, you know. True, very true. And so that's just, uh, it's, it's been life-changing for me, but, um, but, but very worth it in the end. So how, how would you say your experience at MedRisk has shaped you as an entrepreneur? I would say it shaped me and that it's probably defined me. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's, you know, you, you meet a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are sort of serial entrepreneurs that, that like to take a company to a certain point and, and, and start over and go to the next one. And, and for me, it was really about taking this, you know, as and really growing with the business and, and watching the business grow and really feeling like you're a, a, a part of it and the fact that you're, can impact so many so many lives, um, and, and so that that journey has really sort of defined me. And, and as an entrepreneur, and, and when I when I go and I enjoy meeting with these young budding entrepreneurs, and, and you hear their their stories, and you sort of think back, oh my gosh, I remember when, 
um, it's it's really it's it's satisfying and it's rewarding to think that there's some small part of knowledge you can impart on them. Uh, have you thought about what you will be doing next? Oh, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I'm still involved in, in MedRisk, uh, and I enjoy that. I'm um, dabbling in a few other things, and uh, I don't have... Uh, I'm not ready to retire my brain yet, so I'm not ready to exit into the sunset or sit on the beach. Uh, so I'm I'm enjoying dabbling in some few things, enjoy still hanging around MedRisk and sort of thinking about and looking at uh, what my options are for, for what's next. So not sure, but more to come. <laughs> One last question. Uh, what advice would you give aspiring entrepreneurs? Oh, I think that... Uh, I think that list could uh, could go on. If, if I were to uh, if I were to boil that down, um, I think that most entrepreneurs, and we haven't talked about this today, but I think most entrepreneurs have some defining moment where they don't doubt themselves as to whether they're going to do this or not do it. Is it going to win? Is it going to fail? Am I making the right decision? There is some tipping point or turning point. And you'll know when you get it. And then when you get that, you've got to be truly convicted not to look back. And you only look forward. And if you ever sort of doubt, you lose your number, your number two client, you know, um, then you remember that tipping point. And you remember, you remember that point that says, I'm not, I'm not looking, I'm not looking back. And, and you don't. And, and it's a wild ride. It's a life-changing experience. And, you just have to keep going and, and looking forward. Surround yourself with really smart people, people that are smarter than you. And there are a lot of people out there that they are smarter than me, and so constantly looking for the best of the best. Um, and however you need capital along the way, whether you do it with angels or minority or majority, just make sure that it, that it, that it fits right. Well, Shai, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Warden. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, you're quite welcome. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.